Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. So, welcome to the show. This time, we're lucky enough to be talking to Ganesh Pai, founder and CEO of Uptix, a Boston-based cybersecurity company, and sponsor of the upcoming FIRST conference. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ganesh. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for having me here, Chris and Martin. Yeah, we're certainly across multiple time zones today. Uh, I'm recording from sunny Spain. Martin's in Florida somewhere and you're up in Boston. So we have a variety of time zones on the podcast. Two is a variety, Chris, since Ganesh and I are in the same time zone. Yeah. Wow. I am I'm very poor at time zone maths, as can be attested to by anyone who's uh, had, had the opportunity for me to organize a podcast appointment. The, the East Coast uh, time zone in the U.S. is a very long one. I mean, lengthwise, how how much it spans. Uh, I'll I'll get there someday. Let Let's start with the obvious question for those people who don't know who is Uptix and what is this, what sort of relationship brings Uptix to sponsoring the first conference. Thank you for asking that question. Um, We're a Boston-based venture and. Uh, what we provide is uh, technology for uh, cybersecurity coverage for two asset categories. Uh, those where people have their end user computing workloads as well as workloads in the cloud. Uh, now we have a unique model where uh, we ingest telemetry from the workloads and play shift detection as well as remediation related analytics by analyzing the data primarily while it's in flight, as well as in using structured analytics in the cloud. Now, this gives puts us in a very unique uh, proposition because we can do two parts of uh, cybersecurity controls. First is our ability to provide audit and compliance, and second is our ability to do detection and response out of a common set of uh, telemetry which has been transmitted. And that has boarded really well, especially in the context of uh, hunting. And it's been really good for us in terms of uh, partnering with uh, many of our customers who are also uh, frequent uh, visitors to the first conference. Uh, and the correlation there is that the word I want to use is as a part of incident response where people are involved in incident investigation or speculative hunting before things really go wrong. The technology that we provide makes a big difference. And uh, given the detection and response and search engineers that we've had the good fortune of collaborating with, uh, we feel that this is a great conference to be a part of where we can uh, have uh, uh, a network and a connection with uh, the people who, who have that kind of a background. Things go wrong? God forbid. <laughs> I know, I know. And it, it's exciting because uh, those who uh, come in into the conference, I have a unique appreciation from that uh, that I can share from an anecdotal perspective, um, which is to say that 
in the conversations that we uh, have uh, among our customer base, uh, something which might be relevant uh, to the audience is that we fit into an area where, to your observation or what you just said, what lurks beneath is really hard to find. Typically, most vendor-provided solutions, they rely on some kind of a discovery, whether it was a zero day or there was an exploit which has been discovered. And organizations who tend to have uh, detection and response engineers or search engineers are the ones who, as soon as there is something available, are the ones who are trying to like figure out what lurks beneath so that uh, they can uniquely go reduce the so-called dwell time and then figure out and assess what might be the extent of uh, exposure to this newly advertised uh, zero-day vulnerability. And that's where we make the biggest difference. Certainly anything that can help find that needle in a stack of needles uh, that, that people have to try and find is, is certainly good. And I think that working together with people in the incident response arena to figure out what they need and how they can best interact with tools is something that was maybe a little bit lacking. Quite often, people would put together a tool but not necessarily understand what the incident responder really wants. How does this fit with their workflow? And it's nice to have a new tool, but how it fits with the workflow is really important. It certainly is. And it's it's, it's interesting given the collective uh, background where both of you come from. You've been in uh, organizations where uh, the talent pool is immense when it comes to handling such uh, scenarios. Other organizations whom we typically deal with may not necessarily have a similar set of uh, tools available at their disposal, but if the organizations have the people who have that mindset and who want to have a similar security posture and have a similar level of sophistication in their thinking, uh, that's where we've seen uh, great alignment as far as partnership and engagements go. I have to um, comment on the immense pool of talent because these are companies that are hiring people <laughs> like Chris and I. So, But it, it is actually just indicative of security in general. There isn't an immense pool of talent. We have to grow the, those talents are on our own. And for me, that's one of the things I like about going to FIRST is you get to help see some of those people who are growing into the types of, of incident response and it, it's, it is more about the people than the tools. It, it absolutely is. I mean, there's a cliche about uh, technology processes and people. And uh, if I were to uh, use the reason why, uh, you know, this is our third participation in the last uh, five years, of course, due to COVID, uh, things didn't quite uh, pan out. Uh, but when it was in Edinburgh, uh, I was there in person. And then the year before that, or I think two years before when it is in Malaysia, uh, we sent one of our researchers and top security directors, and uh, he made a presentation which was well received. Uh, the reason is because, yes, obviously you can have uh, the best possible technology and put uh, great processes in place uh, without uh, people who are absolutely needed because when stuff is on the fan of the ceiling, that's where the, the elite of the pyramid, uh, the cert engineers or the C-cert engineers come into play to say, hey, what really happened out here, right? So uh, at least when it comes to this aspect of security, where uh, majority of the people who go to this conference fit in, I do feel that uh, people is absolutely the top of the pyramid. One of the things that always springs to mind when I, I think about these kind of uh, tools and opportunities mm -hmm. for these tools is, very much how, how it fits into 
scaling, right? So taking something that's got to be workable for a small company who just wants to ingest a few pipelines, just wants to get some signals, but also all the way up to the large enterprise where everything is automated end to end. If there's a person involved at some point during this, there's a failure somewhere, there's got to be automation fully end to end on as much as, as can be automated. Anyway, how, how do you feel about that? Is there a point where you reach where you go too automated? Or, or is there really a sweet spot that we can hit where all of the easy stuff is automated and you use the humans for the really important subjects? Uh, I'm a firm believer of the latter part today, primarily because uh, to your point earlier, finding out the needle in the haystack is intrinsically a hard problem, uh, especially when it comes to any kind of uh, a machine learning assistive technology. Uh, many people have tried. It's, it's intrinsically hard because absolute uh, anomaly detection is a very hard problem because it's not like the traditional machine learning model where you can train something to say that uh, like how you typically do with images. Is this a cat after showing like 100,000 images of cat and the system determines that there's a cat? That's not what you're attempting. You're trying to figure out like which one is the outlier among uh, hundreds of thousands of alerts and messages that you received, right? So while you can certainly use technology as a basis for assistance to say that uh, given the shortage of people here, let me narrow it down to like uh, what you might want to pay attention to, uh, predicting something with the highest degree of confidence to say that this is absolutely wrong. And here is uh, the, the most anomalous thing is, is a challenge indeed, not to say that technology is probably not going to uh, evolve to like make that happen. Where, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily going to supplant, but for a long time to come in cybersecurity, my personal feel right now is that technology is in best case in assistance for uh, human in the loop to like close the loop. I mean, it's also a cat and mouse game, right? So the more that, that we put effort into uh, AI automation and, and you know, anomaly detection, then more effort will be put into tools that randomize the way they do things, you know, fill the gaps. Like, in, between doing malicious actions with doing anonymous actions that, that kind of looked like a normal user, right? So it's gone on the days where you could say, well, this person filled out a form in under a second and it's 30 questions. This is definitely an automated engine, right? Now you can throw in some randomization. You can throw in some spelling mistakes that people correct using an automation tool. And it looks just like a human does. So it's, it's one step forward, two steps back sometimes. It, it most certainly is. And this is an uh, interesting area where uh, automation could certainly help. And uh, just to give you an anecdote based on our own experience, if you were to look at uh, security in the realm of uh, cloud infrastructure, and especially when it comes to investigation and hunting and things like that, uh, if you were to be using a cloud provider like AWS as an example, you know, there are uh, three major pieces of uh, telemetry or data you can think of, all the AWS provided configuration, uh, the cloud trail logs, which are indicative of uh, the behavioral changes the cloud is undergoing due to interactions with humans. And then they give you the flow logs, which is indicative of what kind of uh, flows are happening in and out of the cloud. Uh, if you look at that, by far the biggest piece of valuable information to an investigator or someone who's really trying to find out what's going wrong, likely is in the cloud trail activity, but that's such a massive uh, stream of activity. Unless you apply streaming uh, analytics and logic, it's, it's very hard to like humanly figure out. 
but from the configuration data, just like how uh, vulnerability assessment tools uh, have traditionally gone and figured out are the configuration related auditable uh, flaws or if there are uh, things which are similar to like how package related vulnerabilities in software, you can do audits of cloud providers. It gives you some information about your security posture. But if you really want core security to do behavioral detection, you really have to look at the cloud trade rocks and treat the, the cloud as an entity which is undergoing a behavioral change and trying to figure out which behavioral changes are most interesting to you. So in, in, in that sense, to what you just said, similar to filling out a form when there is so much interaction with the cloud APIs or uh, the cloud provider, uh, provided user interface, how do you draw a conclusion that this is uh, someone abnormally logging in at 3 a.m.? Is it automation from your own company, or is it the end user who's you know, uh, impersonating a bot user? So they're getting into interesting areas, which, which uh, uh, I personally feel will uh, deserve a lot more automation. This only gets more interesting as we we head into the container space, as we look at microservices and all of those types of things that come up do one or two things, and then you tear them down again. And occasionally you forget to tear one down and it sits around for six months that it shouldn't have. Absolutely, Martin. You're bringing in the compounding effect because uh, use the ephemeral time multiplier times the number of concurrent changes which are occurring, and then you have an explosive situation where there is a short window and it's been repeating so many times over. What point in the day did something potentially malicious happen? You may not be even able to discern it because if there was a small window where a serverless function or a small container was run, how do you figure out whether it had any malicious intent? So it, it, it definitely creates uh, uh, challenging situations. And uh, you're right, stream activity and figuring out while all of this automation is running and trying to detect is going to be a key uh, key part of uh, uh, you know detection and response, especially for these ephemeral workloads. Previously, you've you've worked with First, doing some workshops around OS Query, and I know you've done some additional work around these kind of things. You know, where are you taking OS Query? Facebook open sourced this in 2014 timeframe, if I if memory serves correct. But where's it gone since then? And is that something that you're still actively working on and, and working together with Facebook on? Yeah, the OS query is uh, very fundamental in nature for uptics. Uh, one of the strong beliefs that we have, uh, especially uh, to some part, I'll give uh, credit to Akamai for uh, you know making me think about it because uh, the DNA before we started uh, the company, some inspiration came from the Akamai query system. While the Akamai query system was used for uh, large-scale introspection for infrastructure for debug and diagnostics and other purpose, it was not really intended for security. Uh, we saw, can this paradigm be used where if you have structured telemetry, can you apply uh, streaming analytics and aggregate structure analytics in the backend because it's an ETL-free pipeline because you know that everything which is coming in to the system is very well structured, unlike log-based systems. So uh, when we started the venture, we saw a lot of promise in OS query as a fundamental part of generating uh, telemetry using a very well-structured agent-based sensor. And uh, where we've taken it to the extreme, unlike what it was traditionally meant for as an investigation in the hunting tool, 
is we've converted it to operate it in a sensor mode, and we've taken uh, a similar model as OS query and extended it for Kubernetes control plane into what's called as Kube query uh, to talk with the cloud service providers. Uh, think of it as cloud query, and then for identity providers by calling it as identity query. But the paradigm is similar that if you were to be thinking about OS query as a operating system sensor whose job it is to go figure out uh, what the configuration related information can you scrape using a structured approach how can you tap into the operating system conduits to figure out the behavioral changes uh, what that means is in windows it might be using the etw framework in linux it might be leveraging the ebpf framework to figure out our system calls a leading indicator of potential malicious activity. You don't know yet, but you want to capture all the system calls and then do analytics subsequently. And then last part is because of uh, tapping into the operating system environments, you can get information about uh, flow logs to figure out, hey, was the socket established, which is an indicator of something potentially uh, wrong, or did the DNS lookup happen, or uh, uh, is the IP which it's connecting to is potentially malicious? You can figure all of that out, but the ability to capture that at scale and send it someplace, uh, which makes a difference, is where the rest of the IP adaptex is. But for us, the sensor itself is very fun, uh, fundamentally in nature. It absolutely is right. It always is DNS because that's the starting point which tells you is something going on. Yeah, just for the the listeners, I, I just had typed into chat that it's always DNS because in, in I think all of our experience, at some point it all comes down to DNS and a misconfiguration. It, it most certainly is in, in some ways because those are quite adept and it's hard to do so at scale, but... Uh, DNS activities, uh, if you have the ability to capture them, uh, and more often than not, it's it's harder to do so. But if you can do so from an endpoint perspective versus tapping into it from a wire perspective, you at least have a basic uh, hygiene detection in place to say that did someone go uh, look up something which has uh, some kind of a reputation, not to guarantee it, say that it might not result in a false positive, but it, it at least potentially generates a signal, right? So that's where uh, OS query has helped us in terms of getting that telemetry to decide uh, in the context of a, a broader detection, how valuable a DNS lookup might be. I've always been interested in, in DNS and domain-related signaling and trying to figure out you know, better signaling around or better analytics around long-standing domains being more trustworthy than new domains that were recently registered, you know, domains that change their IP address on a frequent basis, are they more of a concern, things like that. So I'm sure there's a lot of interesting signals that you can pull out from a simple DNS query. It is. And, and again, it's to the eyes of the beholder, which is where uh, you can use technology to a certain extent. And then the broader context of what else is happening around that is what uh, either a detection and response engineer will use or finally if something is really wrong gone wrong that's where the the cert engineers or the c cert engineers come in to figure out like what really happened out here yeah. is this really bad or is it not and then they do the rest of the correlation and uh, figure things out because dns is only one part you want to figure out 
the attribution yeah. to what piece of software originated it. And then you start doing the rest of the investigation to say, how bad is this? Where did this come from? And what piece <laughs> of software actually originated this DNS request, right? So uh, there's, there's the contextual chain makes the biggest difference in uh, especially post, uh, not post breach, I want to say, post investigation scenarios and having that telemetry makes, makes the biggest difference. Uh, uh, those who are especially in the know, the, the, the more among the more, I don't want to say more necessarily astute hunters, but uh, people in the know can certainly leverage that information. I, I wanted to pull on on a couple of the threads that you mentioned previously in regards to things like identity providers, cloud providers, um, and your your use of you know, identity query and cloud query, um, and, and also in the the SaaS space, which tends to be very much a blind space for most most customers right most most yeah. most companies out there like it's SaaS. they have their logs that's their logs that's their problem yeah. without truly understanding that you know this is still your data yeah. just because it's their problem doesn't necessarily mean that yeah. your data won't leak so i'm interested in in how that has has evolved over time things like log4j solar winds and the, the whole kind of supply chain yeah. and, and third-party vendor space has been more and more popular over the last couple of years yeah. and you know how how having better visibility into these things is is, is critical for organizations moving forward. Yeah, I can share some uh, meaningful anecdotes here, given uh, some of the large uh, fintech organizations that we've had the good fortune of partnering with who are also supporters of uh, the first organization. It comes from the perspective, if you were to look at what is a, a typical use case. Uh, in, in these organizations. It's of course a cliche that uh, software is uh, eating the world. It's more so probably in uh, FinTech and other organizations where everything is revolving around software. And if you go through uh, what's involved, uh, typically the productivity endpoint is a Mac or a Windows laptop. And what we see in conversations is a user asserts his identity using Okta or some other system provider. And then he might connect to something like GitHub to do a Git pull, following which you know he's going a behavioral change of doing developing his code and then doing a compilation. And then uh, depending on how the organization is deploying software and technology, the software built on the machine uh, is then going to be using CI CD pipeline and probably using Kubernetes and some combination of containers to do a push of the software which is built and then it most probably is going to be deployed on some place like an aws or a gcp or azure and uh, if you look at it from the perspective of uh, um, you know detection and response and potential csert after that uh, i won't call it a shift left security but shift left security visibility if you were to like uh, go through like what was that act and what is important to these organizations it's from that laptop to the cloud security is what they're looking for. They're looking for, okay, when did he assert his identity? What is Okta telling you relative to the configuration? What kind of uh, audit trail did Okta provide? GitHub certainly provides uh, a fair amount of visibility around who logged in and the audit trails, right? So in that sense, uh, Okta clearly maps into the identity query. Uh, GitHub query is something which is giving you information about uh, what's happening with the GitHub interactions. And the kube query is telling you what are you doing with the kube, uh, Kubernetes and container control space. And then once you deploy things into the cloud, you've got OS query, which is giving you the visibility. 
Now, this at least is laying something foundational in nature, whether there is a provider like Uptex or uh, organizationally you've leveraged uh, some of the tooling in the cloud uh, to ingest all of this telemetry. You can at least lay a foundation in your organization to say that should something go wrong during this uh, supply chain activity where software is being built, or in other words, the crown jewel of your organizations are being built, uh, if something went wrong, you at least have a clear picture for a CSERT investigator or even for a detection and response engineer to figure out what might have potentially gone wrong, right? So this is something that we are very excited about because uh, to your point, it, it, it's a blind spot. And uh, in some ways, people call it as API exhaust, but providers do give you that information. But how do you sequence, ingest, and correlate? becomes a challenge and hopefully that's where we can make a difference as a venture and that's where the whole time zone issue that i had at the beginning comes up as well where different time zones and people don't timestamp their logs and it doesn't yes. really line up anymore so it's not just me who can't do time zones it's, uh, it's also but chris also let's let's remember that as opposed to when the three of us came into security as a profession nowadays every company is a software company every mm -hmm. company relies on these tools on the net uh, I mean, on the cloud, on the SaaS, on the, all of these things. And this becomes increasingly important to be able to have the tools to use that, even if you don't necessarily have a 50-person security team. It, it absolutely is. The, the breadth of SaaS usage and the transition, you suppose hear it for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, if you look at uh, the customer base that we typically interact with, uh, it's either the laptop or the cloud, and everything else is a service, right? I mean, I, I don't know if we are, uh, that's that's really broadly true in general for everyone, but at least in the scope of the Uptix universe, it's almost 100% true. And if that's indeed the interaction that, like how a laptop interacts with SaaS services, your workloads are going to be interacting with cloud infrastructure services, right? And that's been the focus for us to say, how much telemetry can we get in these two realms, uh, the end user computing and the workload computing, and how can these telemetries be correlated? So, so for us, we see a, like how a laptop might interact with SaaS services, uh, a, a workload which is running on Linux or container, how it interacts with services from a GCP or an Azure provider, we see a lot of similarities, except in one case, it's headless computing. In the other case, there is uh, a human in the loop where potentially there is uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, something, a, a higher percentage probability something might go wrong where there's human in the loop. And in, in, in the workload side, it's the workload which is interacting with the services, right? Less of probability, but if something does go wrong, the, the potential uh, damage or the risk is much higher. So I wanted to ask, is there anything we haven't touched on that you're really excited about? I know that with the, the conference coming up, you know, is there anything you're presenting at the conference, anything that you're, you're looking forward to seeing at the conference or other activities? Yeah, one uh, topic which uh, we're very excited to uh, share while at the conference with uh, you know, the fellow investigators is uh, it's around the topic which you briefly touched upon earlier around things like log4j and spring for shell and when these uh, exploits uh, surface up for the first time or uh, in scenarios where you start seeing uh, a newly advertised malware which has come up and there aren't uh, meaningful ways to detect it 
And what we're consistently seeing is a value of something like a Yara-based approach for doing threat hunting. And uh, the reason why we are excited is that including us using tooling such as OS Query at large scale, you now have the ability to ask questions of your entire environment to scope and assess how vulnerable might you be to this newly advertised uh, exploit or uh, this malware which has been uh, made available or uh, the research around this malware which has been made available. And you need a medium to like uh, fan the questions out at you know whatever scale you operate in the cloud. It might be hundreds of thousands of servers, or it might be four or five thousand uh, uh, laptops for a mid-sized enterprise. Uh, how do you do that? And some of the technologies which now allow you to do live interaction, uh, as an example, using OS Query, which has to be orchestrated through a backend. Uh, we feel that it's it's one of the empowering things for uh, cert organizations, especially. CERT as in not network CERT, but uh, from a system level CERT. And uh, those engineers, uh, we feel can definitely leverage some of those uh, Yara-based threat hunting. And we'd be really excited to talk about that uh, when the opportunity presents itself at uh, in, in Dublin uh, in, in a few weeks from now. Yeah, I just wanted to surface that up because we're very excited about that. Well, Ganesh Pai, who is the CEO of Uptix, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we overlap briefly at Akamai, and I'm sorry we never met there, but uh, it's been really good talking to you, and thank you for being a Diamond sponsor for the first conference in Dublin. Uh, thank you for having me here, and I look forward to meeting you guys in person in Dublin. Chris and Martin, thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.